0: This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning and Merry Christmas! It's great to see everybody this morning. What a wonderful message to receive in song after we have taken communion. It is indeed the incomprehensible love of Jesus that draws us all together here today in I have some hopes for you this Christmas season. Uh, I hope you're taking in the sights and the sounds of Christmas. It's a wonderful season. There's Christmas carols and Christmas bells and tinsel and special foods and places to go and quite possibly the worst cake in the world. <laughs> Who makes a cake with no frosting? That is a complete waste of time and that I don't know that stuff they put in there. I'm not sure it ever saw a fruit tree. I am sure of this. It did not taste like that when they got it off the tree. I can tell you that for sure. You know what else I hope for you this Christmas season? I hope you don't miss Jesus. I'm pretty sure most of us will get to Jesus on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. I'm pretty sure most of us will get there. But my prayer for all of us is that we don't wait till Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to catch up with Jesus. Because it's really Jesus and the Spirit of Christ that makes this season what it ought to be. And over the next few weeks, last couple of weeks and the coming weeks, we're exploring this, this concept of Jesus is, which brings up a very big question actually who is Jesus? And why some 2,000 years after he died, why would we still be asking that question? And so I'm going to be teaching us over the next 30 minutes, straight from the lips of Jesus, what he said about himself. And we're going to learn uh, probably the one area in our world where Jesus is the least like us, or maybe I should say where we tend to be the least like him. And it's a big challenge for all of us. Before I get into that, um, I want to say a welcome to those of you who are first-time guests. Um, I know it's a big risk to to jump into a church, even for um, one Sunday. It's a a risk to jump into a church and and look around, and you know, I might not know anybody here. So I just want to say, God has a reason for you being here. And my prayer is that as we work our way through the morning, that you feel something in your heart and what you feel in your heart and the lightness that you feel, you will recognize it is the spirit of Christ at work among us and that you will feel loved and welcomed. You will feel accepted fully as you are and that there would be no barriers between any of us and you. Because whether this is your first time here or you come here every single Sunday, every single one of us is equally welcome right here. And every single one of us belongs equally right here. Now, for those of you who are brand new, let me introduce you to a couple of tools that we use in our church all the time. And the first is this long skinny card. We have a belief that everyone who comes to our church should have the opportunity to communicate directly with our staff, and this is how you do that. So for those of us who come here all the time, we know what the what the thing is. But for those of you who are new, if for right now you would put your name and your email address on the front side of it, as we work our way through the service on the back side, there are places for you to request information about ministries. There's a place for you to check how you're going to apply, what I'm about ready to teach you. There's an opportunity for you to ask our staff to pray about something that 's going on in your life or the life of a friend or a loved one, and at the bottom there 's a place for you to actually get involved with something our church is going to be doing so you can uh, once you put your name and email address on the front, just sort of set it aside at the end of the service we 'll be collecting those and the second tool are the, is the new life notes. if you want to pull those out, they will walk you through what i 'm going to be saying to you this morning in I, I, I want to say one other thing. We have two Christmas Eve services. I know that's an oxymoron because they're not both on Christmas Eve, okay? We have two rockin' Christmas services, one on the 23rd at, at 6.30 in the evening, one on the 24th at 5.30. They are the same, so you don't need to go to both, but I can tell you what, you will not want to miss that service. That That's just going to be a wonderful time. So there you go. That's for free. Now, let's jump into this concept of who is Jesus and why is that a relevant question today, 2,000 years after he lived? Well, really, it's because there are three smaller questions that are very personal that are part of that question. The smaller questions are who am I? What's my true identity? Am I really the result of a coincidental or accidental combination of atoms billions of years ago? And am I the product of billions of years of evolution and this is really as good as it gets? Or is there more to me than that? Jesus has an answer for that question. The second question is, what will I become in this life? You know, Jesus said one day, if the blind lead the blind... They both end up in the ditch. He was teaching us a principle, and that is, who you decide to follow in this life will greatly determine what you become in this life, and actually, it will determine beyond that what the quality of your life is. And the third question that's wrapped up in this is, where will I go when I die? Now, intuitively, we all sense that there is life after death. And somehow, intuitively, we all sense that where we go after we die somehow is intrinsically tied up with the answers to those first two questions about who I am and what I become in this life. That all three of those come in the same package and that somehow they're related to this question, who is Jesus? So let me give you the short course, the Cliff Notes version of how Jesus answers those questions. When you ask the question, Who am I? Jesus would say to you that you are the personal craftsmanship of a loving God who created you to be his son or his daughter and who loves to share life with you. That life is is his gift to you meant to be shared with him. I have an idea that some of us this Christmas season will give to our friends and loved ones the gift of shared time. So we will say to them, my gift to you is an evening out together. Have you ever thought about what it might say if that person said to you, thank you very much, but could I take this and spend it with somebody else? That would raise some questions, would it not? Yeah. I want you to think about that for a minute. Life is God's gift to you meant to be shared with Him. It raises some real questions for Him. When we take our life and decide to do something else with it. So the first thing Jesus would say is that you are the personal craftsmanship of a loving God created to enjoy life with him as his son or his daughter. The Cliff Notes version of what will you become in this life is sort of found in a promise that Jesus made. He said, if you follow me, I will set you free. I'll set you free from the hurts that have come your way in this life that you had no choice or control over. And what's more, I will set you free not only from the hurts, but I will set you free from the anger and the bitterness that you might have about those hurts. And I will set you free, Jesus would say, I'll set you free from also the bad habits you've picked up on your own along the way. And we all have those too, right? And Jesus would say to you and I will create in you this loving and gentle and kind and yet stable and strong and solid and healthy person who loves life. Because you love God. Because you love those around you. And in the end You have learned to enjoy and love who you are and the life God has given you. Now, as I look at those answers, I think, who in their right mind wouldn't be in for that? That all sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So you would expect in this world of 7 billion people, you would expect there to be a line of 7 billion people behind Jesus, right? Because that's all the stuff that we all really want. But there is an issue in our lives that we all struggle with. And the basic struggle we have in this life is pride. Pride is that thing, and we all have it. Pride is that thing that causes us to feel good when others fail. You ever sense that in yourself? Shake your head like this because I don't want you to lie in church. We all do. Pride is that thing that causes us to judge others when they fail. It causes us to power up when we actually should be opening up. You ever have that in your marriage or in your home? Yeah. It causes us sometimes to cheat before we allow ourselves to lose. It causes us to lie about and or cover up our undesired past. It causes us to exaggerate when we tell a story. Causes us to have to have the final word in an argument. And it causes us, this is particularly important for Christmas, it causes us to buy things To impress people who aren't looking anyway. We all got it. It keeps us from some things, too. For instance, it keeps us from celebrating other people's successes, it keeps us from apologizing when we know we should. It keeps us from admitting we are wrong when everyone else in the room knows already knows that we are. It keeps us from admitting weakness. Because we don't admit weakness, it keeps us from seeking help to deal with the weakness we have. Sometimes it keeps us from being honest with ourselves. And often, it keeps us from risking new things because we don't want to fail in the process. By the way, you have recognized that both of those lists are not exhaustive, correct? They're representative. Of both of them could go on for a long time. I don't want to. Say, I don't want to appear mean, and I certainly don't mean it that way. But there's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with those two lists, right? You know the biggest thing that pride does, though? It's not on those lists. The biggest thing that pride does is it keeps us from God. And that's why I want to talk to us about this this morning. Because I don't want our personal pride to come between us and God. And we're going to see this in the life of Jesus. And Jesus, who is God in the flesh, is going to say that to one of his 12 closest followers, and we're going to watch that follower struggle with coming to grips with that reality. And here it is in John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me, and if you really had known me, you would know who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Whoa. Jesus says to his 12 closest followers, one of whom is Philip, You have seen God. Philip says, Whoa, 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 time out, time out. He says, Lord, you show us God and we will be satisfied. And Jesus gives him this response Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? So here's who Jesus says he is. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you now? Ask yourself this question. What more could Jesus do to prove to Philip and frankly to everyone else around him that he was God in human flesh? He had, after all, walked up to people who were blind from birth, touched them, and said, receive your sight, and they immediately saw. He walked up to people who had been deaf all of their life. He touched them, and he said, let your ears be open so you could hear, and they could hear. He walked up to people who had been lame for years and who had withered arms and who had atrophied limbs, and he touched them, and their limbs were immediately healed." He spoke to a raging storm and the storm was stilled. He walked on water. He walked up to the tomb of a man who had been dead for three days. And he said to that man, Lazarus, come forth. And at Jesus' baptism, the heavens opened and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. Now I ask you, what more could Jesus do? And yet, somehow... Philip is looking into the eyes of God wrapped in the package of a human body and he doesn't see him. I wonder what kept Philip from seeing God when he stood right in front of him. Have an idea. This whole concept of pride is just sort of so much part of our nature that here's the deal. No one expects God to be humble. I have to tell you this. As I did the research for this message, I dug down into my own heart and I realized something about about myself that somehow I didn't expect God to be humble. I expected Jesus to be humble, but I didn't expect God to be humble. And I dug a little bit deeper into my theology and I realized that God sits in the heavens and the angels declare his glory and he's the almighty and he's the all-powerful and all this stuff, he's worthy of our praise and he's worthy of our love. And somehow, I'm like everybody else. I sort of make God to be a bigger and more powerful version of me. Remember what Kevin said a couple of weeks ago? He said, you know, God created us in his own image and for several thousand years we have been returning the favor and we tend to make him in our image. Yeah, I want to stir that up in us a little bit because you know something? If we were all powerful and we were almighty and we sat at the highest position possible and we were somehow God, there's a way that we would do things. We expect kings to sit on thrones And to wield their power and make decisions according to their own preferences and the way they would like for things to be. Somehow, that crept into my theology, and somehow I thought God set aside all of that and humbled himself and took on humility when he came as Jesus. Friends, that's just not good theology. God didn't set aside his pride to become a humble human being. The God who sits on the throne of heaven is already humble. And i got to tell you, that's hard to grasp. Because that's not how we do stuff down here. I want you to get that this morning. That the God who fathered Christmas is humble. Clear to his core. So that's why his birth was different. Let's read about his birth. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David, and he went there to register with Mary, who was engaged or pledged to be married to him, And was expecting a child. Now, for those of you who need a little bit more of the short course, Mary is pregnant, but not by Joseph. She's she's been made pregnant by the Spirit of God. She is a virgin. And the reason they're going from Nazareth, which was up in the northern part of Israel, down to Bethlehem, which is in the southern part of Israel, is because the Roman Emperor has issued an order that everyone has to go to their quote town of origin where their family is from, and they have to register. So Mary Pax, uh, Joseph packs Mary, um, puts her probably on a donkey, and they head off for several days' journey down to Bethlehem. Now, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I want you to know something, that the God who sits on the throne of heaven, who is humble and gentle and loving and kind and strong and healthy and solid, the God who sits on the throne of heaven orchestrated every one of those details because it's in in alignment with who he is. He didn't do that to demonstrate how far he was willing to stoop. He orchestrated those details because that's who he is. Is that different from any king you know? What's the name? Prince George who was just born? Is that how it happened for them? I don't think so. But that's how God rolls because He is humble on the inside. Clear to his core, there's not a proud bone in his body. That's why Jesus could say in Matthew chapter 11, give us this wonderful invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and who carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And notice what he says. Take my yoke on you, let me teach you. And what does Jesus say about himself? Because I am, what's the next word? Humble and gentle at heart. And then he says to us, When you learn to when you learn to let me teach you, and you learn to follow me, here's what's gonna happen. And you will find rest for your souls. Did you know that it's pride? That drives us often, and it's humility that allows us to rest. I said a while ago that pride is what keeps us from celebrating when other people succeed. You know why? It drives us. If they succeed, what do I want to do? Succeed what? More. Yeah. Humility would let us rest and go, isn't that wonderful? I'm so happy for them. That's just great. And then pride goes, but what about you? And all of a sudden, the RPMs ratchet up again. Jesus said, you'll find rest for your souls. He goes on to say, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you, man, it's light. Yeah. So once again, if this is what Jesus says to us, why would we struggle with that? Well, I think we struggle with that sometimes because we don't actually understand what pride is and what humility is. And in fact, this concept of pride is so deeply rooted in our human nature that when we go to define humble, we actually don't have very good words for it. In fact, I went to dictionary.com And here are the top three meanings of the word humble. Are you ready for this? The first one is this, not proud or arrogant. Does that tell you what it is or what it isn't? It only tells you what it isn't. The second thing it says is this, having a feeling of insignificance, inferiority, and subservience. Now, friends, if I stood in front of you this morning and I invited you to live a humble lifestyle and you're hearing me say, would you please choose a life of insignificance, inferiority, and subservience? How many of you would be up for that? You Are you nuts? Now, let's take that and apply that to God. Do you think God really suffers from feelings of insignificance, inferiority, or subservience? What do you think? That's a horrible definition. And yet in our minds... Unfortunately, when we use the word humble, those are the things that tend to come to the surface. Here's the third meaning. Low in rank, importance, status, or quality. Can you put any of those to God? How about low in rank? Nope, that doesn't fit. How about low in importance? Nope, that doesn't fit. How about low in status? Nope, how about low in quality? Nope, God doesn't fit that. And friends, you and I shouldn't fit that either. And I think that's sometimes why we don't expect God to be humble because that's internally what we tend to think of humility. And and I want you to know this morning that God has a completely different definition of humility and it's who he is at his core and it's what he invites you and me to experience in this life. And here's how the Bible teaching defines humility. Humility is choosing to use humility Our personal power or status to serve others and to stand for right, but to do it in a way that honors the dignity of all. I want to break that out for us a little bit. There are five major components to humility. And by the way, for those of you who are already Christians, I'm going to challenge you at the end to take one of these each day, Monday through Friday, and to pray about it in your life. Because they are five wonderful components of humility. And the first is this choice. Do you realize humiliation can be forced on you, but humility never can? True humility begins with a choice. God is humble. We have to choose it, okay? Because we struggle with pride. Secondly, power. Do you realize powerlessness is not humility? In fact, you actually can't demonstrate humility until you have power or until you have status. For those of you who are parents, you have an inborn power or status. Christ would say to you, How humble are you as a parent? Think about this. Do you lord it over your children? I want you to think about how terrible that word is. And then we take the word Lord and attach it to Jesus. That's just wrong. We've ruined that word in that sense. Because Jesus, our Lord, doesn't lord it over people. Yeah, he's humble. Not weak, not small, humble. And when you have power and when you have status, you can either use it in ways that are prideful and based on power, or you can use it in ways that are humble. The third component is this. When you decide to use whatever power or status you have in a way to serve others, then you're starting to touch what humility is. There is, I wrote in my notes, there's an otherliness about humility. You see, pride enters the room and says, I'm here! And it sort of sends the message, it's all about me. Humility enters the room and somehow, quietly and gently, conveys the truth, it's not about me. It's about you. I want you to think about Jesus' life. He spoke the worlds into existence. He created every single person who was inhabiting planet Earth at the time he was born, and when he decided to come to Earth to do something about our sin that was destroying our lives, and he was going to be the sacrifice for the sin of every person on the face of planet Earth wasn't really about him. He could have said, I'm here. I'm the king. I'm the conqueror. I'm the one who's who's here to set you free. But instead, he entered in a way that was congruent with his humble heart. And he had a way of conveying to every person he talked with, it's not about me. It's about you. There's an otherliness to humility. There's also this concept of standing for right. And are not allowing other people to be downtrodden and not allowing wrong to win. And, and there's this sense of standing for right. And so Jesus often stood in the gap when those who were disadvantaged were being unfairly taken advantage of, and when people were corrupting the house of God, there was a way in which Jesus stood for right and everybody knew it, but he did it humbly because he did it in a way, number five, that honors the dignity of all. My grandfather, who was a pastor, who loved people, had a massive heart, loved people, I can remember him saying, to me and anybody else who was in the audience, you can be right as heaven about what you believe, but wrong as hell about how you go about it. Humility is not only right about what it believes, it's right about how it goes about it. I want to read you a passage. It's one of my favorite descriptions of Jesus. And Jesus quotes it about himself. He says, He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out the flickering candle. And in the end, he will cause justice to be victorious. And look at this. His name will be what? The hope for all the world. Do you see gentleness in there? Yeah. Jesus wouldn't fight or shout. And even uh, the weakest reed or a flickering candle, he wouldn't snuff out a break. Gentle and yet strong, standing for what's right. So that brings us to I'll give you my age here, the $64,000 question for those of you who are able to remember that TV show years ago. Here's the $64,000 question. Will you choose this humble king to be your king? In this life, you get to choose your king. Jesus offers to be your king. And you know what he offers? If you follow him, not only to set you free and all those things we talked about earlier, he promises to take you to the new heavens and the new earth where there are places to go, people to see, and things to do, lots of them, and an eternity to do them in the very presence of your heavenly Father who has given you life, in this life, and will give you life after this life. So bringing this all down home, I want to ask a question. Why have some of us in this room not yet made that choice? Seems like a logical choice. It certainly seems like a great choice. I think there are some reasons. Number one, for some of us, this is new information. For all of our lives, we assumed that God was proud and we had trouble getting in line behind a proud God. I get that. This is new information. So if it's new information, I would encourage you, take it, chew on it, but recognize that it calls for a choice from you. For some of us, it's a courage thing because we know the moment that we choose Jesus to be our king and the moment we choose to become a Christian and a follower of Christ, there are certain criticism that awaits us from our family or from those who are closest to us. And we we realize that there are many things in our life that will change at that point. And I would be the first to tell you, and so would Jesus, it takes courage for many of us to step out and follow Christ. For some of us, it's a pride issue. It takes humility to say, I'm a sinner, and I need someone to help me. It takes humility to say, I cannot save myself. I cannot orchestrate or earn an eternity with God. I need to be forgiven and I need to have the power of Christ at work in my life. And intuitively we know that a humble king will not allow his followers to be proud. You got that? Yeah. And for some of us, It's a control issue. The idea of Jesus guiding me to decisions in my life. I'm not sure I want to give up that control. I don't know what the issue is that you struggle with. But I want to tell you this. I stand before you this morning as a representative of the humble king. Who invites you to choose him as your king. Because if you do, that decision will change how you look at yourself, what you become in this life, and where you go when you die. I'm going to lead us in prayer. If you're ready to make that decision on on your Connect card, that card you filled out at the beginning, there's a place that says, I'm making a first-time decision to follow Christ. I want to encourage you, check that box. And give us the opportunity. I will, I will put some tools in your hand this week so that you get started in a healthy direction as you follow Christ. And I want to encourage you, make that decision now. This will be the Christmas that you finally understand and get in line with what Christmas is all about. And for those of us who are already Christians, I want to encourage us, take those five components of humility and pray about one every day so that we can walk behind our humble king and walk in humility that makes us gentle and yet strong you make your decision as i pray father thank you so much for my friends who are gathered here this morning thank you so much for your work in their lives thank you jesus for coming to our world thank you for entering our world in a way that's just so in line with who you are would you make us strong healthy, solid, gentle, loving, and kind people who understand what real humility is and and who have had it created in us by your Spirit. For those of us, Father, who are accepting you as, as, as their King today, would you help this to be that major turning point in their lives where your Spirit comes into them and begins to change them into the people that they always could have been and that you have wanted them to be and enabled them to be by your son. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen, amen. amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.